If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Priya Atwal, who's a teaching fellow in modern South Asian history at King's College London. Priya has recently published a new book on the Sikh empire of the early 19th century, examining its spectacular rise and fall and exploring the lives of some of its key players. She also wrote an article on this subject for the October issue of BBC History magazine. Priya was joined in conversation by our editor, Rob Attar. Okay, so first of all, um, I suppose a rather basic question, but geographically, whereabouts was the Sikh Empire? So the Sikh Empire is today split between India and Pakistan. The heart, the heartland of it was the Punjab in, in northern India at that time. The southeastern border of it was the River Sutlej, which uh, demarcated um, Ranjit Singh's Punjab from the other separate Sikh states in southern Punjab and then the British Raj in the rest of India. And the northern and western borders were with Afghanistan and Tibet and then, of course, the rest of Central Asia. So it really did span quite a vast area of land in what was then northern India and spreading into the Himalayas. And actually, from what you were just saying, you talked about other Sikh kingdoms. So this is not the only Sikh um, state around this area. Absolutely. So uh, Ranjit Singh's kingdom, the Sikh, what well, today we know as the Sikh Empire, what it wasn't known as such then. Those are those are modern terms that we're using. Um, was one of several Sikh kingdoms that emerged really by the end of the late 18th century, and um, there were some other Sikh states that were south of the River Sutlej, between the River Sutlej and the River uh, Jumna, that are today known as the, the Sistersutlej states, but were essentially the kingdoms of the, the Rajas of Badiala, Nabba and Jind, um, as well as uh, Kapurdala. So those, those were other smaller Sikh clans um, that alongside Ranjit Singh's family's uh, warrior band, the Sukhajukya Missile, were essentially part of 12 Sikh warrior bands, the Sikh missiles, um, which predominated throughout the Punjab throughout the 18th century, but by the middle to the end of that century were setting up little kingdoms of their own. And um, Ranjit Singh would go on to conquer the vast majority of those kingdoms by the early 19th century, but three or four remained separate, managed to remain separate, and, and only managed to remain separate in that southern corner of Punjab because they cut a deal with the British early on to, to sort of get their protection rather than be swallowed up by Ranjit Singh. 
So Ranjit Singh's name's already come up quite a few times. I guess it would be useful to know a little bit more about him, what his background was, and how instrumental was he to the creation of the Sikh Empire? So Ranjit Singh was... Um, he's he's something of a bit of a legend of in, in Sikh history, um, but he's essentially the chief, the young chief of what was known as the Sukhachakya Missile. So as I said, it's a, a warrior band, um, one of 12 that were meant to be one amongst equals. Um, essentially these kind of guerrilla warrior bands that emerge after uh, the death of the last Sikh Guru, Guru Gobind Singh. Um, at the start of the 18th century, to the, and, the, and these are warrior bands that start off really quite small, and they're they're groups that come together to form a united Sikh army to kind of protect the Sikhs. Um, they were a nascent religious community, quite vulnerable in terms of the power politics of the region of the Punjab at that time. It was sandwiched between powerful Mughal governors and Afghan invaders, as well as other tribes and groups in the region. These warrior bands um, that were, you know, Ranjit Singh's ancestors, essentially, they they conquer all sorts of land and territory um, across the Punjab. And Ranjit Singh's family, the, the Sukhachukya clan, were, were kind of a small group in the northwestern corner of Punjab at this time. But because they were fighting off the majority of the Afghans in that, in that region and in that period, they rose to power and prominence quite quickly. And so by the time that Ranjit Singh's born in 1780, um, you know, they've, they've already conquered a, a solid base, essentially, that, that then forms the basis of a kingdom for him for later. Um, but Ranjit Singh's known as, as really being the most ambitious and, I guess, aggressive and competitive of all of the Sikh chiefs of this particular period. And whereas his ancestors had tried, I mean, they, they get increasingly competitive in setting up their families as, as almost mini royal dynasties and, you know, and setting themselves as powers themselves. But he takes it to another level. Um, the, 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 his father's and grandfather's generation, they, they had to kind of a, align with each other or cut deals with each other and, and kind of power share throughout the region of the Punjab, even as they were accruing more and more wealth and power as they went individually. Ranjit Singh takes over and um, essentially brings the vast majority of these former kingdoms and all the other you know, ruling powers in the region or powerful landlords, etc., under his sway. And in 1801, becomes known by the title of the Maharaja of Punjab, the great king of the region. And now, how important do you think that it was that this empire was Sikh, and as opposed to, say, Hindu or Muslim? What did that mean about its character and its behaviour? That's a good question. I think I should probably unpack what I mean by Sikh empire quickly. Um, it's it's a title that we've come to understand and use in history writing about this particular kingdom, really from the middle of the 20th century onwards. It wasn't actually ever referred to by that at the time. And um, it was referred to in a number of ways. It was referred to by the British as the Kingdom of Lahore or the Kingdom of the Sikhs. Um, and by the Sikhs themselves, by Maharaja Ranjit Singh, the title that he gives to this government is the Sargare Khalsa, or his army is the Forja Khalsa. So the, the government or the army of the Khalsa, which was the egalitarian revolutionary brotherhood of the Sikhs that Guru Gobind Singh set up in um, at, towards the end of his life. So essentially, Ranjit Singh sets himself up as ruling him as a Sikh king. And... What we have to bear in mind is that the Punjab and Northern India at that time was, you know, Sikhs were nowhere near in a majority in the region. They were a small but quite important minority. And, you know, it was actually a Hindu and Muslim um, strong population in, in the time. So um, although the kingdom is set up 
as a Sikh one as such. And it's, you know, the Maharaja makes a great deal of the fact that he's trying to rule according to Sikh principles and how, well, what he interprets Sikh principles to be. It's still a very cosmopolitan place. And he has Hindus and Muslims within his court, within his government, uh, within his army, his as soldiers and generals and that kind of thing. And also as wives. He marries multiple Hindu and Muslim women alongside multiple Sikh women. So it's a f- in, in the sense of what it meant for him to be a Sikh king, where he claimed to be driven by the principles of Sikhism, which essentially meant humility uh, and sharing power with others um, and, sharing, and, and, and acting as a hopefully a moral king. But when you start looking into his story, it's, it's not always as straightforward as that. And essentially, he... Um, he does a lot to patronise the Sikh faith and, and endows religious institutions. He covers the the temple, the Harmandir Sahib, the famous, what we say now as the Golden Temple, in gold. He p- mints coins in the name of the Sikh gurus and rather than his own. He So essentially, he, as a Sikh king, he recognises that power comes from God and from, from the Sikh gurus rather than from himself. And it's those principles that he enshrines. Um, but at the same time, he's after hard power that he's passing on to his dynasty rather than to the Sikh people at large or the people of Punjab at large. So essentially he's trying to be a representative of Sikhs and of the Punjabis as a whole. Um, but it's it's a very interesting thing about how he just try and set himself up as this model Sikh monarch. And, and aside from his and the empire's military victories, what would you see as the other key achievements? Well, okay, the military achievements are huge. And, and to be honest, most of the history writing on his period has really focused on that. You know, his conquests of key forts and, and towns and battlements all, all throughout the region and taking on the Afghans and all sorts. But you really see a huge and really amazing cultural and social flourishing of Punjab in this period. And, and that's why it's really seen as a golden period in many respects. I mean, one of the first things that Ranjit Singh does and that he's quite acclaimed for is he establishes primary education for every Punjabi throughout the region in his kingdom. Um, he was illiterate himself, so it's brilliant that he he did that. And the standard of education in Punjab actually slipped once British colonial rule came into power. So you can really imagine that, you know, all the wealth and prosperity that came with his success was pumped back out into his subjects. And you, you can see that art and architecture also flourished quite interestingly throughout his period. Um, you know, new buildings, new gardens... Um, temples and mosques and everything were were lavished with money and it was all I guess part of him trying to build allies and supporters throughout his kingdom but he was quite generous about it and and the nobility that rose into power under him too were also then able to spread the cash around as well I suppose and and so in that period the buildings that survive uh, from them whether they're private homes or whether they're you know temples or that kind of thing some of the paintings that we see inside of them, the frescoes and, and that kind of thing, whether they're men or women's homes or whatever, are really beautiful. And it's just a shame that a lot of these places are now falling down and haven't been properly uh, preserved. Because it just goes to show that, you know, artists, even musicians and dancing girls were really heavily uh, supported and, and, you know, encouraged by the Maharaja to, to kind of almost contribute to the glory of his kingdom. And something you mentioned uh, just there in your last answer was the role of the British. Which, which is obviously an important part of his story. So how did the Sikh Empire relate to the East India Company at this time? So I guess what you could say with the East India Company is that they're, they're, they've become friends, but it's the most competitive friendship that you'd ever see. Uh, so, I mean, it starts off quite rocky in... Um, 
between 1806 and 1809, uh, Ranjit Singh is this young warrior chief that's just taken on a royal title. And I mean, well, fair enough, it actually starts quite simply. He wants to go to bathe in the Ganges at Hardwar and in, during a, a popular festival, the Kumbh Mela. And um, he needs permission from the British in order to pass through certain territories to go and do that. And so he goes to his uncle, Raja Bhag Singh of Jind, his mother's half-brother, to sort that out. And so that's all fairly straightforward. But then within a year or two of that happening, um, there's Maratha chiefs and Rajas coming to his court to seek support for him to fight with them against uh, the British. And, you know, that's huge. The Maratha Empire at this point in time was another major rival of the British and, and had also helped decimate Mughal power. And so Ranjit Singh's faced with this difficult decision, who does he side with? And at the point when he's only just establishing his rule and his kingdom. And he gets numerous requests like that over the years from the Gurkhas and, and others. And um, he decides to side with the British. And his uncle's very instrumental in encouraging him to do that. The uncle's uh, the state of Jin, this sandwich between Ranjit Singh's kingdom and, and the British territories. But Ranjit Singh quickly realises that um, maintaining this alliance with the British will be really helpful to him. He recognises that they're a dangerous power not to be messed with in the region. And so he takes them on board, but he goes toe to toe with them. And, you know, so things like establishing his supremacy over those other Sikh kingdoms in the south, that doesn't go his way. And that does irk him greatly that he would like to have covered all of the Punjab, all of those kingdoms and extended the southernmost border of his kingdom to the Jumna. It doesn't, he's not allowed to do that. But essentially, um, he, he becomes this very powerful friend of the British. He realises that in the end, it's worth maintaining the alliance with them and to be on their side rather than against them. And the, and the British at that time, you know, various political officers and governors general that are involved in assessing North, the situation in northwestern India and Afghanistan recognise that it's better to keep Ranjit Singh on side. There's, there's all sorts of worries on their side too that, you know, first Napoleon and then the Russians and the Afghans or even the Persians could, could win him over and turn him against them. And they, they look at the size of the army and, and the skill that, that this, the new army has that he's building. He recruits all sorts of French and Italian generals and whatnot from, from Bonaparte's army. And uh, they don't want to mess with that themselves. So it becomes a very well-established, very carefully maintained friendship throughout the duration of his life. And then following on from that, um, to what you... Ex- extent do the the two monarchies relate to each other because certainly from reading your piece you get the sense that Ranjit Singh saw himself a bit like a European monarch with that kind of royal family was there much correspondence between them and the British royals uh yes there was slowly slowly it starts to emerge um I think it's interesting Ranjit Singh is really keen to establish a connection with the British royal family so there was one of the passages in the Persian Chronicle that I looked at really closely for a lot of this research and he was reducing one of the things that's most famous about him is he was super curious about the world and about people that he came into contact with. And there's one passage that recounts how he was so confused about who was the boss <laughs> for the British and how he quizzes numerous British visitors or European visitors to come, that come to his court to say, who really is the most important person then within, you know, what is this company and, and, and what is a governor general and who's, who's the king, who's the queen, where are they? And eventually he realises that, you know, of course, the monarch is all the way in London and it's completely far away. And ultimately he wants to reach them. And of course he treats, he treats various governors general with a great deal of respect. 
um, and really lavish hospitality when they come to visit him. But it's always with a view to getting access to the British royal family and establishing himself as their equal, really. That's the ultimate, because, of course, then he can say that he's toe-to-toe with this global royalty rather than just with the company. And so he sends these really um, beautifully decorated, very florally you know, written Persian letters to the court of Queen Victoria and her uncles before her, she ascends the throne. And um, he receives gifts back. And it's interesting because this all takes place in this quite fluid period where, of course, the company's power is really rising in Britain. And, you know, the late Georgian Hanoverian kings are, um, some of them are not so interested. I mean, George IV, William IV really weren't that bothered, but they do start to become more bothered towards the end of their life and when they're realising that India is becoming a big part of British politics. Um, So you see these rough exchanges of letters and... um, One of the British kings even sends a very grand carriage and dray horses to to Lahore for Ranjit Singh because he was a big fan of horses. Um, But all of this is is very closely monitored by the company. And if anything, the the delivery of those massive horses by boat is used as an opportunity to scope out intelligence about navigating the rivers of Punjab, which they're hoping to do some trade on. So it's, it's really after Ranjit Singh dies that the relationship solidifies when his own son, Dilip Singh, the last Maharaja, becomes best friends with Queen Victoria after he's exiled from the Punjab. But it's very much there. Queen Victoria writes in her diaries about the stories that she hears about Ranjit Singh. And she's always very happy when she receives some shawls or some sort of gift from his court. And it's clear that she recognises him as an esteemed ally. Um, but yeah, it's... It's quite a fascinating relationship that they're, they're both sides are clearly very curious about each other. And do you think that our focus on Ranjit Singh perhaps overshadows some of the other important players that are high up in the empire? Definitely. I think that's been a, it's been an issue in the history writing on this kingdom for a very long time. And I can kind of understand why that's the case, because, you know, he's championed as this national hero in a way by, by Sikhs and Punjabis. But um He's also championed in British colonial historiography for their own purposes. And what a kind of a narrow, slightly glorified focus on Ranjit Singh, how it creates problems, is it obscures the focus of, um, you know, the other powers, the other forces, the other individuals that were at play in making this kingdom and in keeping it alive because they kind of tend to portray him as a superman. And, And no one person, of course, could have... You know, it's the ultimate great man history, essentially, that that way of writing history. And of course, no one person, despite all the, you know, hagiography and the mythology around them, could, could possibly run a kingdom of, of that size and stature on their own. Um, but that's, that is quite literally the portrayal that we get of him in so many biographies and also, interestingly, colonial accounts of that time. And there's politics behind that um, with those colonial sources. They they often try to then use that as a stick to beat his heirs and successors with, to say that you can never live up to the standard of your father, the great Maharaja. When actually, um, you know, within his family, there were really powerful women um, who supported him as a young boy when he was just 10. He was only just 10 when he inherited charge of the kingdom. And although he was clearly very bright and very talented, you know, it was his mum and his mother-in-law who really put him on the map and kept him safe. And then... You know, as soon as he has children, um, and and those children hit the age of six, seven, eight, his eldest son, Gorak Singh, is sent to battle and sent to, you know, lead campaigns and be visible, essentially, 
in in capturing forts and that kind of thing because he's he's representing his father and the expansion of his father's rule um and then alongside of that of course there's a whole host of very talented generals and courtiers and and others who are you know working within the administration of the kingdom so we tend to know more about the talented men in particular in this kingdom but less about the women and the children and that's what i've really tried to bring to light with the book is to to add a more holistic picture and then use that to show well, actually what was going on within the power dynamics of this kingdom we can we only get to scratch that under that surface if we slightly take the spotlight away from ranjit singh was it typical in, in this period of indian history that women were able to wield a fair amount of power even if behind the scenes yes yeah, yes and no it did depend on you know regional politics and and culture and that kind of stuff but throughout this period and even earlier you know with the establishment of mughal rule um you know in the in the reign of barber to even akbar um and and then later you, it's not an exceptional thing to see women operating some aspect of political power it could vary i mean it in the punjab you do see you know sikh women going to battle leading troops and 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 these war bands right um that's part of the sikh faith that women are expected to you know get involved in military combat if they need to in 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 a righteous cause or or that kind of thing and that they're equal to men so that was part of the faith that the, and the the culture that these women were brought up in but then they were also of course embroiled in the power politics of the time um but throughout indian history you've seen women involved in um organizing dynastic marriages in managing the politics of a household you know acting as wise advisors and counselors within courtly politics and as diplomats essentially in their own right and so in the punjab in the sikh empire it's no different these some of these queens i mean ranjit singh marries 30 women uh and that's not a small number <laughs> by any means they have a lot to do still to come on the history extra podcast in that space of a year uh, cheer singh essentially manages to pull the throne back in a coup he has jandagor's head literally bashed in with stones by her slave girls it the politics of lahore just becomes incredibly deadly and brutal this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a seventy-five dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com/slash/historyextra. Just go to Indeed.com/slash/historyextra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, um, the Sikh Empire didn't actually last that many years following the death of Ranjit Singh. So, what do you think meant that it wasn't able to survive having had so much success during his lifetime? Well, it's like hangs on for another ten years, um, but it takes a, it definitely takes a battering in that time. But in the book, I actually make the argument that. Um, essentially you know the 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 standard narrative that we get is that when ranjit singh dies because he was such a great man and such a brilliant political leader only he was the person that could hold together all the different political competing strands and moving parts within the politics of the punjab and that was, as soon as he dies it's all going to go pear shaped and so everyone just says well it's inevitable that that that, that annexation is going to take place within 10 years that the british are going to come and take over 
I disagree with that argument in the book. And I say, well, actually, what you've got to look at is the culture of the monarchy that he establishes and that his family established lives on. Um, the family managed to stay on the throne. And even in 1849, um, when the kingdom was about to be annexed, Henry Montgomery Lawrence, who was the political resident at Lahore, who was the company-imposed resident, even he wants to keep the empire intact and keep little Dilip Singh, the last Maharaja, on the throne. Um, and so what I try to argue and, and show within the book is, and, and this is despite, I have to say, you know, this, 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 this royal culture and this monarchy manages to cling on despite two wars and a rebellion amongst the Sikh army that eventually essentially becomes its own revolutionary force within the within the kingdom. The deaths of multiple courtiers and also of members of the royal family, the Sikh royal family themselves. Um, we do see a battle for the throne basically take place, but the throne and the, and the dynasty remain at the heart of this. So there was obviously something powerful and influential about the, the style of rulership that they had set up, that there were multiple opportunities to kick them off and get them, get them away in those 10 years, but nobody actually wanted to do it. It's only right at the end when Dalhousie, the governor general that comes to power in, over the company in 1848 and 49, um, he is ideologically opposed to maintaining Indian royalty and power. And he even, in his private correspondence, as I started to see in, in, in Edinburgh and in Scotland, um, was quite keen to remove the Mughals from power as well. So I think what I've tried to argue with the book is that you know, the family and the dynastic politics that they capture, although it gets quite toxic after Ranjit Singh dies and after his eldest son and his grandson die um, in quite a murky situation in November 1840, there was something strong and tenacious, nevertheless, about their hold on power. And, you know, it's only once, you know, you see colonialism really actively getting involved in the Punjab and, and trying to reshape that royal culture, and it weakens it from within. And then when you get a governor general like Dalhousie, who is quite openly wanting to take over Indian kingdoms throughout the country, you rock the boat too hard at that point. And of course, then later on, you see the problems that that causes with the 1857 rebellion. But the fall of the Sikh empire comes really at the beginning of that if you see what I mean. So I think when we place that kingdom and its politics and Ranjit Singh and his family themselves within that broader context, um, we see how it becomes part of this massive shift about the relationship between British colonialism and Indian kingdoms in this period. And that's, I think it's a critical factor. So in a sense, you see the fall of the Sikh empire as being more about the changing nature of British colonialism than inherent flaws in the Sikh empire's governance. They're essentially, the, 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 the problems within this, the Sikh empire's governance become compounded by this external shift, if you see what I mean. It's not to say that there weren't problems within the inner workings of the Sikh empire or even with Ranjit Singh's family. What you actually see emerging internally is a power struggle that then weakens the heart of the family as well. So yeah. after Ranjit Singh's um, eldest son, Gurukh Singh, and the grandson, Nolnihal Singh, they die within five days of each other. After that happens, there's a problem because the settled order of succession that everyone believed was going to carry the kingdom through to the next few generations, upon which Ranjit Singh himself had pinned all his hopes for the future of his dynasty and the kingdom and which he built his alliance with the British, when that collapses overnight, pretty much, you're left with a problem and that is who will fill the shoes of those Maharajas? 
And a power struggle emerges because it's another Maharani, a queen, Chandgaur, who was Gorak Singh's wife, Ranjit Singh's eldest daughter-in-law, um, who comes to the throne immediately versus Ranjit Singh's, well, we're thought to be illegitimate son, Prince Shir Singh, who, who was thought not to actually have been fathered by the Maharaja. You have a battle within the dynasty over who can be the legitimate next ruler. And that battle over the bloodline versus gender, should a woman rule or should a, a prince rule, essentially, who may or may not have been fathered by Ranjit Singh, that becomes really toxic. And in that period, in that space of a year, uh, Shir Singh essentially manages to pull the throne back in a coup. He has Jandagore's head literally bashed in with stones by her slave girls. It, the politics of Lahore just becomes incredibly deadly and brutal. And it's, you know, it's worse than an episode of Game of Thrones in some ways. It's just really quite grim. Um, but when you have that internal destabilisation about who can be legitimate, should it be a woman? Should it be a member of the family? Who can it be? Uh, the army gets involved. They become bribed on all sides to fight within this power struggle. And the British are watching on from the sidelines. And so when you, when you have that revolution of what goes on in British colonial thinking about Indian royalty, and you have this fight starting to emerge within the Punjab itself, you bring the two together, it just becomes incredibly messy. And so the, for the last couple of people that come to the throne, um, Maharani Jindagore and, and Nitul Dudeep Singh, who's only four with his mother, um, they're faced with an incredibly difficult task, you know, incredibly hostile waters in which to be trying to keep the ship of state afloat, essentially. And then what happens to the surviving members of the dynasty after the British have taken over? Well, um, so I was able to find out a bit about that from the pension records that still survive today in the British Library. I mean, the dynasty was huge. If you bear in mind that the Ranjit Singh himself married at least 30 women, and then his sons also had multiple wives. Um, I think we're talking about 45 women in total. Then you think about any children that they may have had or adopted, any servants or slaves that they kept, you know, the households and all the rest of it. Um, their pensions were paid to them by out of the revenues of the company state, um, out of the former Punjab, you know, coffers. And most of them live on in Lahore or throughout the Punjab, these, these former wives and widows. Um, the most famous pair that we know are the last rulers, uh, Jindgore and Dilip Singh, so the last Maharani and her son Dilip Singh. And they are both exiled. Jindgore is actually exiled by Henry Lawrence in 1848, um, first out of Lahore and then out of the Punjab altogether because she seemed to be a massive troublemaker. And a troublemaker because she's purely trying to maintain the independence of her son and her kingdom, which the British don't want her involved at all. So that's where the toxic gender politics really comes into play. And then Dulip is only 10 when the kingdom gets taken over. But because he's such a powerful symbol of the Punjabi resistance, he's not involved in the rebellion himself, but he's the last Maharaja. So anyone's going to want to try and get him back on the throne. The British remove him from power and then they, sh they ship him off to another town in northern India. And eventually he settles in Britain. And it's for 13 years, mother and son are not allowed to see each other. It's just seen as far too dangerous by the company for you know, Jindgore to be reunited with Dilip Singh. She's immediately put in prison in, in a high security fort in, in near Benares. Um, but she manages to escape. 
she manages to escape. She she uh, she disguises herself as a maidservant and and actually trekked all the way from Benares to Kathmandu in Nepal on foot and by boat, which is just incredible. She was just a serious uh, fighter. And finally, she's able to be reunited with Dudeep, and that's in 1861. And she comes to live with him in Britain. And she actually dies in London at Lancaster Gate. Um, and the Maharaja, by that point, is best pals with, you know, Queen Victoria, the British royal family. He, he makes his life as an English country gentleman, almost. Um, and he lives that way for another 20-odd years. And then 1886, he, he goes into rebellion. His, his life does not go well for him, really. He has, he has a really quite tragic setup in his life. And uh, he goes on rebellion. And, and in the end, that flops as well, just as his mother's attempts. And poor thing, he dies as a penniless, broken-hearted man in Paris in 1893. So none of his children have gone on to have descendants. But of course, his most famous daughter was Princess Sophia, who was the suffragette princess. So pretty amazing family story. <laughs> Incredible. And so what what does the Sikh empire and this history mean to Sikhs nowadays? Um, well, I don't know if I can speak for all Sikhs. I'm, I'm a Sikh myself. And from what I understand from talking to people and I guess what I know myself is it's, it's an incredible piece of history to have, isn't it? Um, what I'm finding and what I myself experienced is that perhaps Sikhs have grown up in the diaspora, like myself, haven't perhaps always grown up knowing that this existed. If you go to school in Britain or in the US or Canada, you don't get taught this in your curriculum. I mean, even if you grow up in India or Pakistan, you don't get taught this. So unless your family are quite interested in history, um, you don't always know. But those that do know have a great pride that this was an empire that we once ruled, a kingdom that we once ruled, and one that was, you know, there's a lot of mythology, a lot of romantic mythology around it about the greatness and the glory and the prosperity of this kingdom. Um, I myself, I was always a bit of a history geek, but I I didn't know about this. Um, it was at university that I found out when I was 18 and I went to study history um, at Oxford and it was a few friends that had organised a talk um, and I was blown away absolutely blown away and I was very intrigued by the story of Maharani Jindgaur and and the you know her rebellion against the British uh, but I think now with the with the reaction that I'm getting to the book I think people are hungry for a a slightly more nuanced and a slightly more investigative history of this period that that goes beyond the legendary Ranjit Singh and and ask some critical questions about what it meant for this Sikh empire to exist and and how it really operated and and who were the other forgotten characters, I guess. So I've had lots of lovely messages from people. There seems to be a lot of excitement. Um, and I think in this time where we're re-evaluating histories of empire and that kind of stuff, it's it's really important to focus on all different kinds of cultures and politics from this this really quite complicated period of history. So it's, it's a timely story beyond just for the Sikh community, but, but for everyone, actually. Yes, I would hope so. And I would think so. Um, I mean, the thing is, is, you know, Ranjit Singh himself aspired to be something of a player on the global stage. And he managed that in his lifetime. And where his kingdom was situated was at the crossroads of power and, and empire building, not just in South Asia, but in, in Central Asia as a whole, right? Uh, so, and, and his relationship with the British royalty and all that kind of stuff... Um, it's quite an epic story and it's it's got it's got layers of connection to so many other you know powerful topics about monarchy about empire about you know 
the way that culture was evolving at that time. So um, I hope there's, you know, that this will be something that readers within and beyond the Sikh community will, will really enjoy. That was Priya Atwal. Royals and Rebels, The Rise and Fall of the Sikh Empire is out now, published by Hearst. And Priya's article, which originally appeared in our October issue, is also now available to read online at historyextra.com forward slash Sikh hyphen empire. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Wednesday to hear Charles West on the turning points of medieval history.